right, let me tell you about something that happened a year ago this week. Hey, Chase. Huh? Hey, wave at everybody. He's <laughs> back. He's back. Let me tell you about something that happened. It started February 8th, 2023. It was a Gen Z revival in our time at Asbury. A couple of my buddies went to Asbury Seminary, and there's a college there. It's a Christian college in Kentucky, in a small town called Wilmore. Raise your hand if you went to like a small town Christian school. All right, there's so many people who went to a small town Christian school. And not everybody did, but let me just show you a few pictures. So February 8th is just chapel. Just every, every day you go to chapel, and it's just kind of a normal chapel service, except after chapel was over, a bunch of these college kids stuck around. And they, they just kept worshiping. You know, the, the band gets back up, the choir gets back up, and they just, they want to keep worshiping. And the people who were there, they say this was not a spectacular, like, chapel. It was just like a, even the guy who spoke, he was like, it wasn't my best. <laughs> it's sort of like I had the outline and I brought it here. You know, it's, it's a, a room with wooden pews, and it's just chapel. But something happened that day. That day, the Holy Spirit was poured out in a special way in Wilmore, Kentucky, a year ago. Like, that's pretty recent, right? So they actually, they stay there all day. And there's about this many through the night, they stay there praying and worshiping. And, and the next day, it fills up even more. And they say they start seeing, like, friends reconcile. And they start seeing people confess sin. They start seeing people experience healing. And in a couple of days, it gets, gets even bigger. This is about day four. It just swells to max capacity. So they have to start finding other locations around campus to also host prayer and worship. There's people coming in from outside of town, other schools, other groups, they're coming in. And then they're bringing them back to their schools, like Samford University. There's all these other schools that also start doing the same thing in, in their places. By the, the fifth night, you just can't even get in the building. There's tens of thousands of people who've descended on this small town because of a chapel service that didn't stop. People are lined up. You can just watch like drone footage. They're lined up around the block, just waiting to get in the room to pray and to worship. They say, you have to be Gen Z to get in. You have to be a young person, a college student to get it. We just, we don't have room for everybody. This is a Gen Z revival that happened in our time. Guys, I've, I've been to a Christian college. I went to a, a Bible college called Fried Hardeman University, small town Christian college. And I know what chapel is like every day. Right? My, I shouldn't say who. I had a friend who had a, a hookup in the dean's office that would clear his chapel absences. So he never went. Right? It was like, chapel was almost like a punishment. It was this requirement. It was this obligation. It wasn't the thing that turned into a 20,000-person revival with people coming in from around the world. This is amazing. What's different? I think, in a word, hunger. Because at Asbury, something had happened generations before, multiple times, where people had come to expect that the Holy Spirit could be poured out in such a special way. There was a senior student who was there that day. She said, I am one of many who have been praying for this since my freshman year. She personally committed four years of personal prayer to seeing an outpouring of the Holy Spirit through an event like this. There were local pastors who said things like this. I prayed all my adult life that God would let me see one more great awakening before I leave the world. So I'm sort of asking this question. What comes before the outpouring? If, if we are a people wanting renewal in our church and in our city, what comes before the renewal? What comes before the revival? What comes before the awakening? So the first great awakening in the United States and in the UK, one of the key leaders was a man named Jonathan Edwards. He says, I suppose there's scarcely a minister in this land, but from Sabbath to Sabbath used to pray that God would pour out his spirit. He says the whole nation, every minister is just praying week to week that God would pour out his spirit and he would work a reformation of revival of religion in the country and turn us from our intemperance and our profaneness and uncleanness, worldliness and our other sins. 
And we have kept from year to year days of public fasting and prayer to God to acknowledge our backslidings and our and to humble ourselves for our sin and to seek the God of forgiveness and reformation. He said, do you hear what he's saying? He's like, we've spent some time in the prayer room. We put in the hours of fasting. We've organized our people for public and private prayer and fasting. And he says, and now so great and extensive of reformation is so suddenly and wonderfully accomplished. Before the outpouring, there was hunger. Here's another one. One of the most recent kind of revivals that happened at a big scale was called the Hebrides Revival in the Hebrides Islands off of Scotland. And eyewitnesses of the Hebrides Revival described a kind of spiritual posture found among some who were the catalytic core, like the people who started it all. There was a spirit of urgency and audacity, an attitude of brokenness and desperation, a manner of prayer that could be daring and agonizing called travailing prayer. We've come to believe that the true seedbed of awakening is the plowed up hearts of men and women willing to receive the gift of travail. One of my favorite preachers, he did a global tour of a lot of the revival sites and he interviewed people. He went to the Hebrides Islands and he interviewed people who were there. And he goes to all over the globe. And he comes back and he, he asks this question, what comes before the outpouring? And he says, it's hunger. God comes where he's wanted. But what happens when we've lost our appetite? Uche Anazor has a book called Overcoming Apathy. And he's describing apathy. He says, the paradox of apathy is that for the spiritually apathetic, there is an inverse relationship between the greatness of a truth and our emotional and practice, practical response to it. He says, the bigger it is, the smaller our response. The grander the truth, the less we care about it. Whatever the reason may be, we are bored by big things. The bigger, the more boring. We are, ironically, numbed by grandeur. Let me illustrate. Today, a lot of our groups, you're probably going to watch the Super Bowl, and there's going to be 100 million Americans talking about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Like, without exaggeration. There's going to be 100 million people. I'm talking about it right now. And I, so I'm like, I'm not even sure what I'm doing right now. <laughs> you all seen the Lego movie? It's a silly kids movie. Everything is awesome. He's like, read the headlines. Don't forget to smile. Always root for the local sports team. Always return a compliment. Drink over overpriced coffee. Everything is awesome. It's just like the, the triviality of life. Neil Postman, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he says the public has adjusted to incoherence and has been amused into indifference. So Anazor, he says, everything is presented as momentous, worthy of comment, worthy of indulgence, so that our faculties become dull to the truly remarkable. We are numbed by triviality. It's sort of like you, you go to a fancy dinner with an amazing spread for the entree. And before you ever get to the entree, you've been nibbling at the appetizer so long that there's no room for the main course. You're filled up on appetizers. Did I get an amen? Oh, we hear awesome. <laughs> Piper calls these the deadening effects of innocent delights. I've used this phrase a couple of times in the last several weeks. Richard Foster, he says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. And this is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ because we cover up what is inside of us with food and with other things. Let me share this lengthy quote from Piper's book on fasting. He says, the greatest enemy, you've heard me say this two weeks ago, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetites for heaven but endless nibbling, Austin, at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. The pleasures of life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices, they are gifts of God. They're your basic meat and potatoes and coffee 
and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking and all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. When Jesus issues this invitation to a great banquet, he tells a parable in Luke 14. He says that the invitation goes out to everybody and then the excuses come back. I just bought a field. I have to go check on it. I just got some oxen. I need to go try them out. I just got married. I can't come. And then the word that comes back to all of them is, none of you shall taste my banquet. It sounds like you've got some things to do. It sounds like you're filled up on other things. So what happens to those who have no hunger for God? They're not invited to the feast. There's this thread line of food temptations in the story of God, right? It's Adam and Eve. It's the goodness of food that is part of the temptation away from the word of God. This is Esau. It's, it's the immediacy of a meal that distracts from the great inheritance that could have been his. It's the children of Israel. They want leeks and onions in their soup. <laughs> Some of them are like, I just wish we could go back. He says, You're, you won't even go in now. So the people who don't have a hunger for God aren't invited to the feast consistently throughout the story. There's this story in Mark 4 of the, the good soil. Remember the seed of the gospel is sown in all these different types of soil. And in one soil, it takes root quickly, but then it says the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. We get distracted by lesser things. We get distracted by other things. And God is wanting a people who will not live by bread alone. When we see Jesus as the true son of Adam, as the true son of Israel, the Spirit leads him into 40 days of prayer and fasting in the wilderness. And it says at the end of it, he was hungry. But Jesus was not more hungry for bread than he was for God. Through this journey, he proved that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said that he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will never go hungry. And so today I want to explore prayer and fasting. This is a three-week series. I just want to today mostly invite you to hunger for God. One scholar in his book on fasting says, Almost everywhere at all times, fasting has held a great place of importance. He's like, no more. Perhaps this is the explanation for the demise of fasting in our day. When the sense of God diminishes, fasting disappears. Piper, he says, perhaps then the denial of our stomach's appetite for food might express or even increase our soul's appetite for God. So let's look at hungering for God, the practice of fasting, and what it could look like with our church in this season that starts on Wednesday. Okay, we're going to dive into a case study on one of the great heroes who sparked revival in Scripture. And he did it through prayer and fasting. And it comes in Daniel chapter 9. Now, Daniel chapter 9, scholars say, is some of the most difficult passages to understand. So let me just say, that's going to be set aside. Maybe we should do a little intercessory prayer for someone. Sorry, Sully. Daniel 9. It's got some really complicated stuff at the end, but we're mostly going to look at fasting through the lens of Daniel 9. We're going to look at at the person of Daniel and look at his hunger, his fasting, and his prayer. So, you've got Daniel 9 in front of you. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Can I just kind of catch you up on what's going on in Daniel's life? If we want to understand Daniel's hunger, you have to understand what Daniel's going through in his time. You see, Daniel was born, let's call it about 605, in the Jerusalem area of Judah. He's, he's born there, he's a boy, he's raised. 
And before he's maybe 20 years old, he's maybe somewhere between 10 and 20 years old, he is taken captive as an exile, and he's exported from Jerusalem to Babylon. So that would be like some European country colonizing the United States at the age of our children and taking your children away from their homeland and their people to go live in a different place. Daniel is that guy. And when Daniel gets to that place, he's like, you're not going to change who I am. I'm not going to eat what you eat. I'm not going to drink what you drink. You remember Daniel 1, where he only eats vegetables and he only drinks water and he's still, by God's hand, strengthened. Daniel 2, he's this interpreter of dreams and he he says, I'm not going to bow my knee to your gods. Thank you very much. And neither are, are these guys. Remember his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're, they're thrown into the furnace for disobeying the order of the king. They will not bow the knee. Daniel, he does the same thing. He will not stop praying to his God and looking to Jerusalem for hope. And so he's thrown into the lion's den. Right? You know these stories from Daniel. This is this guy. And this is the end of his life. He's no longer a teenager anymore. Now he's in his 80s. He's in his 80s, and he's got his Bible open, and he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he comes to this amazing realization. He says, as he's looking from the scriptures of the word of the God, he says, the desolation of Jerusalem is going to last 70 years. He looks at his watch, checks his calendar. He says, it's been 70 years. Is this about to end? Is this over? There's just been a change of kingdom. The Babylonians are gone. The Persians are in. He's still in the city, but there's a new king. Is this? Is it really over, God? See, I think when, if we want to understand hunger, you have to understand that hunger is intimately tied to hope. Hope. Hunger isn't actually a good feeling. Hunger is the desire of the unfulfilled. It's the ache of the undernourished. It's the homesickness of soul. Hunger is actually because it's not good. It's wanting something better. To say we want to hunger for God, it actually means that God hasn't been filling you up lately. It means that our experience of life in a fallen world is so far removed from the goodness and the blessing of Eden life that he promises. It's to say that the kingdom of God has not come yet fully. Instead, we live in the, the kingdom of Memphis and the kingdom of the United States. We live in the kingdom of the world. And it's a hunger for something, but hunger is intimately connected to hope because hope spurred, grows hunger. And finally, after 70 years, he thinks, is it really here? Could this be the moment? Let me, let me just picture this. What he does is he opens his Bible and he's reflecting on the prophets and the word of the Lord. And he's reflecting on the word. And from his reflections in scripture and the voice of the prophets, it grows his hope and his hunger. I want to be back in Jerusalem. I want to see, I want to see your temple filled up with your glory again. I don't want to be in Babylon anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I'm, I'm over it. God, is this happening now? That's where Daniel's at. You see Daniel's hunger? This is the moment. And so what does Daniel do? Daniel's hunger actually leads into Daniel's fasting. Look at verse 3. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. He says, I turned to the Lord God. This reminds me of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20. He says, we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. <laughs> I'm turning to you. Who else can do such a thing? This is the prayer of the prophets. You remember Joel 2? It's quoted in Acts 2. Joel says, return to me with all your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And who knows, he may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. So blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call an assembly. He says, get all the people gathered, get the elders, get the kids, get the babies, get the, the grooms and the brides and, and the priests. And he says, and let them all weep on the temple porch. 
Let them fast. This is what it looks like to turn to the Lord in the scripture. It says they pleaded with him. Pleaded. You can just see the tears of Daniel. This is all, all through the prophets. Sometimes Jeremiah is called a weeping prophet. When God says, he's not really the weeping prophet. He's the prophet of the weeping God. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. My eyes fail from weeping. I'm in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. You see the weeping prophet? Corey Russell, his reflection on the gift of tears, he says tears are liquid prayer. He says we need tears. The gift of tears is the outward sign of the inner revelation of our inability to change anything. Tears are the manifestation of poverty in the spirit. Tears are liquid prayer, liquid desperation. Remember Psalm 42? He says, my food day and night has been my tears. You know what hunger is? It's when all you can eat are your own tears. But there's this connection between broken hearts and spiritual breakthrough. Do you remember the, the Hebrew slaves groaning in, in Egypt? They groaned in their slavery and they cried out. And God heard their cry. This was Hannah who was praying for a child. She's overcome to the point. People think she's intoxicated at the temple. And she's like, no, I haven't been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. And she fasts and she prays and she weeps. And the Lord heard her. Hezekiah took his desperation to the temple and he said, spread it out before the Lord. Nehemiah, he sat down and he wept and he fasted for days. For four months, he's in the season of fasting and prayer. A government employee, a wine supplier for the king, becomes the conduit of revival. Those who sow in tears will reap songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, the psalmist says. This is the way of Jesus, too. Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. This is the way of Christians. The Celtic missionaries, when they went to Ireland to try to win Ireland from the Druids for Christ, it says, if the tears weren't flowing, uh, sweat would suffice for the labor of travail. They say, just pray until you pour out everything you've got. Benedict's rule included daily prayers with tears as a community for past sins. Chrysostom, he says, these tears are how souls are planted. It's when you plead to God and you humble yourself. But somehow here, they're pleading and it's connected in with prayer and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Can we just talk for a minute about what fasting is? Now, we introduced fasting as a church. We're a baby church, so we just introduced it last year. It's not a new thing. But let me just clarify what it's not and then what it is. Fasting is not... Manipulating God with our grief. God is not manipulated by our pain, but he is moved by our prayers. Fasting is not for stuff. Fasting is not for health. There is fasting for health. Biblical fasting is not for health. Fasting is not for show. You can fast for yourself, for show, for health. But God says in Zechariah 7, was it really for me that you fasted? Fasting instead is the bodily response of hunger for God. Fasting is the bodily response of hunger for God. It's a response in his book, Fasting. Scott McKnight, he says, Fasting is a person's whole body, natural response to life's sacred moments, especially grievous moments. So fasting isn't about the results that you get. It's about the response to something. And when you realize that God is far away, or that his kingdom hasn't come, or that I am in my sin, fasting is the response. But it's a body response. Fasting, it speaks with your stomach what you feel in your head. It's, it's the whole body response to something. While we fast, we don't just speak our requests to life's sacred moments. We feel them physically and viscerally. It's the bodily response of hunger 
for God. It's really about, McKnight says, empathy with the divine. It's, it's feeling what God feels about something. Let me see as you see. Let me feel as you feel. Remember when Moses went up on Sinai, he fasted for 40 days because he wanted to be with God. Anna, the lifelong widow that we always read about in Advent season, she hungered so much for the presence of God and she was looking forward to the redemption of Israel the day and night with prayer and fasting because something was hungering inside of her. Hope was stirred. She was moved to fasting. You remember John the Baptist? His disciples fasted. Why? Because they were waiting on the Messiah to get there. Fasting is this, this is hunger for God. I want you and I want your kingdom. And the reason Jesus' disciples don't fast is because he's right there with them. The absence of fasting for the disciples was a witness to the presence of God in their midst. You don't have to hunger for God if he's walking right next to you. He says, but when I'm gone, then they will fast. It's the bodily response of hunger for God. So he's hungry for God. His hunger moves him to fasting as a response to that. And then that fasting response drives him back into prayer and confession and reflecting on the word. Can I just show you the cycle? Because I think this is just so opposite of intermittent fasting or secular fasting. This is biblical fasting. Biblical fasting is where you got your Bible open and your hope and your hunger, your humility is stirred. And so you're driven back into the word and you want more prayer and fasting. And it just keeps this, this cycle of I want more of God. God, would you speak? I'm listening. God, I'm responding. It's a cycle, what we call hearing and doing. Where you hear the word and then you respond. All right, so last, last movement here. This is the lengthy confession that we read for us in our confession time. This, there's just so much. I, I, we'll have to skip here. I'm, I'm sorry. We just got to move through this. This is an amazing prayer of confession for so many reasons, and Lord willing, we will revisit this multiple times in the next few years. Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed. You see, confession is, that's the prayer of the penitent. Confess. And he says, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. Really, all I want to show you in this prayer are the four motivations for why Prayer and fasting leads to confession. The motivations. The motivations, that apathy, that, that triviality, you know, the, the, the grandeur of everything, we've just been numb to it. What's the antidote to all of that? It's these four pieces of Daniel's prayer capture the transformation of somebody from a person of apathy into a person of passion. And in a culture that's numbed by triviality, and shrinks from big, these are four big things that I think are worth dwelling on more than Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey this afternoon. The first one, it's God's love. Do you see it there? Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. <coughs> he keeps his covenant of love. Anazor, the one who wrote the book on apathy, he says, what does God have to say to those numbed by the magnificent and the meaningless? His word to us is not one of condemnation. As with other sicknesses of the soul, God enters into our apathy to heal, to free, and forgive us. In fact, we really first need to arm ourselves with the truth that we are not our apathy. Indifference doesn't define us. Even though at the present moment it feels like it does, what is most true of us is what God has done through us, for us through Christ. We are already free from slavery to apathy. We are already healed of a bent towards indifference. We are forgiven for our numbness. The apathetic are not barred from God's grace. Grace empowers. Grace motivates. Grace causes us to put forth a real effort in our fight for godliness, but make no mistake. This is not all about touchy-feely love and self-affirmation. We most certainly must own that we are not, that, sorry, we must certainly own that we are in a bad place. Yet, this is where we encounter the paradox of grace. This is a wonderful prayer. Let me learn by paradox 
that the way down is up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul. You see, Daniel doesn't fast to get God to love him. Daniel fasts because he knows God already loves him. You remember the Lord's Prayer? How does it begin? Our Father. On the Day of Atonement, it's, it's the day, the one day in Scripture of an absolute fast, no food or water. It's 24 hours of no food and water, and why? It's not because God doesn't love them. It's because God says, I want to cleanse you. I want you to come in. Remember Jonah's problem with preaching to Nineveh? He doesn't want to preach because he knows. He says, that's why I was so quick to flee. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew you were loving. That's why I didn't want to know. It's because of his love that we fast. It's because of his love that we confess. Thomas Ryan says, the tendency is to think that God will love us if we change. But God loves us so that we can change. Practices like fasting enable us to appropriate and make real in our lives the freedom given through grace. It's grace. It's not the only motivation. Let's keep reading. He says, Hi. You keep your covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And we have sinned and done wrong. And we've been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our ancestors to all the people who live. It's remarkable that Daniel shifts from I to we. Did y'all see that? He shifts from I to we. Twelve times he says, we have, we have, we have. And yet, one scholar says, nowhere do we get the slightest evidence that Daniel has personally participated in the sins that lead to the people's present condition. Yet he doesn't say, forgive them, Lord. Rather, he identifies with the people and cries out, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Daniel confessed the sins of his people as his own, and he becomes the intercessor when he does. What qualifies him to be an intercessor? Is he a priest? Is he a king? No. One of the glories of Scripture that no special permission is required for intercession on behalf of others, only prayer. So, he says, Lord, you are righteous, but we're covered in shame. He says, we continue to sin. He says, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we've rebelled against him, we've not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through the servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, they've been poured out on us because we sinned against you. You fulfilled the word spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing us great disaster. Under the whole of heaven, nothing has ever been done like what's been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God of turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we haven't obeyed him. Do you see what he keeps saying? He says, you, you, this was in the covenant. We agreed to this, right? So let's understand why my people are being punished. We had a contract, and we broke all our side. And actually, you said, if we broke our side, you would do this. And you're, <laughs> all you're doing is fulfilling your own word and the obligations of your covenant. You're, you're the one being righteous, we're the one being unrighteous. And so his motivation is because of the righteousness, the justice of God. He, he just keeps saying this over and over. That God is just and God is righteous. God, God says, like, I have a will and a word, and I have great blessings for you if you follow this. And if you contradict or break this covenant, and you go against my will and word, there are consequences that follow. Sin produces suffering, in the language of Tripper Longman, one commentary on Daniel. Now, I was reflecting on this passage, and I was kind of praying through the night. My kids have had trouble sleeping, which means I get a lot more time with the Lord. And I had this mental picture I want to share with you. Can you just picture somebody surfing like 
on a, a beautiful coast. Huge waves crashing, and they're, they're, right, the, the wave is pushing them forward. The, the curl is going, they're, they're just in it. They're being moved. But now picture someone on the beach. As the wave is breaking right next to the sand, they grab their surfboard, and they dive straight into it. What happens? <laughs> they get smashed into the sand. No, they get like whiplash. They get pulled under by the current. They get smashed. And then they stand up and they say, why is this happening to me? It's like, um, that's not how you surf. That's, you have to go with the current. You can't go into direct opposition and expect to enjoy it. All right? I was splitting wood with my kids. We went to Beeman Shelby Forest State Park a lot of last week, and we were splitting wood. And Fletcher loves to swing a hatchet. It's one of his favorite things to do. He's really good at it for an eight-year-old. But even a good eight-year-old, if you turn it against the grain, he'll just get no progress. But if you try to split with the grain, it just pops right off. And you can get a fire going. You can get a blaze going when you move with the grain. Sin produces suffering. It is God's justice God, that leads to the, the wrath and the anger response. <laughs> Daniel knows this. He says, you're being fair. We're being sinners. <laughs> We've broken it all. This isn't because of you. This is because of us. But he knows that God has set us love, and he knows God is just, but he has two more motivations. Let me show you them quick. He says, now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name. You made for yourself a name. He's, he's going back to the time when God got a reputation in the world. He said, I remember those days of Egypt. You made a name for yourself. He says, now, our God, hear the prayers. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear. Listen, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We don't make requests because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. You see, the third motivation is, is the name. By the way, do you know the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the driving motivation of God's activity in the world. God is free to do what God wants. And thanks be to God, he is a good God. And he is gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's not willing that any should perish. It is because of the character of God. But God is free to do what he wants. And to appeal to God on the basis of his nature unlocks the power in the prayers of the saints. Thy sanctuary, thy name, thy city, thy people are at stake. Do this for your name. There's a total lack of self-interest, and there's a deep concern for God's glory. Now, some of us, I think we need to get a hold of this, because our hunger is for things in our life, and it's just so small, and it can't actually satisfy. It's one of those wells that is like a broken cistern that has a leak on the bottom, and it just can't hold anything. But when you get a hunger for the glory of God, there is nothing that contains it. I mean, it's just enormous the weight of glory that comes from it okay last one last one last motivation you see this it's sprinkled throughout the prayer the lord our god is merciful and forgiving he's merciful and forgiving even though we've rebelled look at this we don't make this request of you because we are righteous but because of your great mercy lord listen lord forgive lord hear and act final one is a move of mercy. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. <laughs> it's actually pretty amazing just how similar the prayer of Christ is to the prayer of Daniel. It's the mercy of God that is our hope. It's the patience of God that is our salvation. And so in his mercy, for his glory, for his righteousness, and in accordance with his love, what would it look like to enter into a season where we sought to hunger for him? I want to invite you to a season of prayer and fasting. Let's get practical for a few minutes and then we'll close. 
I know Kelsey gave me one of these things. Yes. We've got a little prayer and fasting guide for everybody on the table back here. It's, it's a real simple guide. The guide isn't where the, the payoff is. Right? The payoff is in that cycle of reflecting on the word, being moved to hope and hunger, going back to the word, and finding prayer and fasting. It's, it's that cycle that I'm inviting you to. And this is an invitation, not an obligation. I think you know that love is the measure of the Christian life, not a lack of food. So this may not be for you, this may not be for everybody, but as a church, I think it would be a beautiful and powerful possibility if we stepped into prayer and fasting together. Lent this year begins on Wednesday. And on Tuesday, we're going to have our own version of Fat Tuesday, right? You get together, no Mardi Gras, just pancakes. Six o'clock Tuesday, we would love to have you here. It'll be a time of joy. We'll have mostly pancakes. Some of you will ask you to make pancakes. Can you imagine how many pancakes it's going to make to like feed 80 people? It's a lot of pancakes. We're going to need some help. But then Wednesday, which means you have a couple of days to really discern God's leading in your fast. Um, the early disciples of Jesus began to honor a 40-day fast that's now called Lent very early on. Augustine, he argued that the law says it. Moses practiced a 40-day fast. Elijah practiced a 40-day fast, so the prophets say it. And he says, and Jesus practiced a 40-day fast. So the whole Bible is saying that we should practice a 40-day fast. And nearly all Christians everywhere have fasted during the season. And it's the season of repentance. It's a season of repentance. Um, this is the language of Esau Macaulay. He says, Lent is inescapably about repenting. Repentance is a change in direction, a spirit and power turning around. Repentance is the first step we make toward God. But to turn toward God, we must turn away from something else. That something else is our sins. Lent, then, is about turning away from our sins and toward the living God. A season dedicated to repentance and renewal should not lead us to despair. It should cause us to praise God for his grace. This is central to Lent, he says. So I want to invite you to 40 days of prayer and fasting starting on Wednesday. You're like, well, if you know your calendar, that's not exactly 40 days. It's because Sundays don't, don't count in the count. Um, in fact, from Augustine on, the recommendation is to not fast on Sabbath, on Saturday, or on Sunday. It's like you don't need to obtain anything that's already been given. So those are days to just kind of recognize, no, you don't have to do that. Again, this is just invitation. But there are three types of fast in, in Scripture. The first one is a normal fast, which is where you give up food but not water. Now, I heard rumors of someone who was fasting for several days without water. Let me just say, that is the longest anyone goes, as far as we can tell, without water in Scripture is one day. I do not recommend going farther than that. A normal fast is giving up food but not giving up water for a designated period of time. And traditionally, this is basically during daylight hours. A normal fast would be giving up food during daylight hours. A partial fast is where you give up a type of food. A lot of you are going to do that. You might give up sugar. You might give up meat. You might give up something else. Uh, Daniel, he gives up all food except water and vegetables in his fast at the beginning of Daniel. And then there's the absolute fast, which is no food, no water. And that's the fast before the Day of Atonement in Scripture. And I think it's consistently brief and should be such. Now, for health concerns and job requirements and family needs, if you're a nursing or pregnant mom, um, you should take a special uh, precaution here. Um, many of you may need to consult with your medical provider. And it's just each person is going to do this differently. Luther himself said, it's utterly idle to impose one command about this on a whole group and congregation, since we're so unlike one another, one strong and another weak in body, and so one must mortify the body more, another less. He says this is going to look different for different people. Don't overdo it. Remember, this isn't about a spiritual accomplishment. It's really not the point. The point is essentially to hunger for God, to make room. So uh, grab the guide, and if you've got kids, I would love to see our kids be invited to this in their own way. Invited means they're part of the conversation, and their fast is probably going to look different from your fast. Even if they don't fast, I would love for your kids to see you fasting, to in themselves just grow a hunger for deeper discipleship to Jesus. I think there's a, a prepare of your heart that needs to happen here. Jesus warns about the dangers of fasting. 
He says, you'll have your reward if you do it for the wrong motives. John Wesley, he says, let us beware of fancying we merit anything of God by our fasting. He says, you can't procure salvation of debt and, and not of grace. He says, this desire is so deeply rooted, you have to keep it in check anytime you fast. Prepare your heart. Check your motives. Whenever you talk about your fast, don't do it in the terms of comparison or envy or accomplishment or pride. Instead, do it in terms of insight and hunger and prayer and worship together. But I think perhaps the most important thing, practically speaking, is to choose a time to fast where it can move you to reflection and prayer. Choose a time to fast where it moves you to reflection and prayer. The point isn't to be more productive through lunch by skipping it. The point is to hunger for God. And if you don't replace a meal with prayer, Zechariah 7 says, like, are you even doing this for me? Consider replacing meal times with prayer times in your home. Consider worship times in your home. Invite your group. Invite your friends. Turn on YouTube worship. Sing a cappella. It doesn't really matter how you do it. You can allow the guide uh, to help you on your journey, but don't, don't be limited by what this guide uh, encourages. Each week in it has a unique focus. It has a daily reading plan, a scripture for every day, and a prayer to repeat for every day of, of this journey. Let me just imagine what it could be like if we did this. All right. Last one. Let me close you remember Luke 7? There's a woman who's known in town as a sinner. And nobody wants her around. And she comes in crying. And most of the men in the room, all they can do is say, what's she doing here? And she takes her tears and she starts washing the feet of Jesus. And they say, "If this guy can't be a prophet. If he knew who she was, he wouldn't let her do that. Can you imagine the shame of even in the room, much less the shame of being in a community known as someone who's a sinner? Just in the room knowing that they're thinking about you and they're shaming you in their own minds. She's weeping. She's a sinner. Her life has not gone the way she wanted it to. But there's this beautiful thing that happens. That it shows every man and woman. By the way, studies have shown that men actually weep more than women. Do you know this? They just are far more reluctant to do it in public. Every man and woman can come to the feet of Jesus and give them your tears. Everyone can bring your shame. All of us can bring our sin. Can you imagine 40 days of going to the feet of Jesus with your tears? You might even stand up straight after that. Of being so dearly loved by someone so special, whose name matters far more than those men in the room. I, I think if there's going to be a renewal in our church, and if there's going to be a renewal in our city, if you think big, if you think about an outpouring of the Spirit, it comes from hunger. And if you think about an outpouring, it comes from people. It comes from people, you, individuals, hungering. This, this hunger leads to weeping, which leads to confession, which leads to scripture, which leads to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, don't you see her? Your sins are forgiven. The, thing, the reverse of apathy is grace. That's Uche Anazor. He says, grace is the antidote. It's great. It's love. It's being so dearly loved, bringing nothing but sin and shame, and still being seen and recognized. Would you stand? I want to bless you. <clears throat> God, would you pour out your spirit? 
one of people who've lost their appetite. Father, I believe that this season is one where you want to cultivate our hunger. You want to sharpen the ache. You want to expand the homesickness. You want to burden our hearts for what is not good. God, but the hungry people you promised, they're going to be filled at a feast. You say they're going to be satisfied by rich foods. You say we're going to eat the bread of the one that we never go hungry again. And so God, grow our hunger as a church and pour out your spirit to bring renewal. Lord, humble us this season. Humble us and grow the ache of our sin. Make us hunger for righteousness, for your mercy. Lord, I ask that you illuminate it all in our hearts. Cleanse us. Purge us. Set the fire of your Holy Spirit ablaze in us that we might be purified, consecrated, set apart for the work that you want to do in this city. God, shame and guilt is always around the corner. But would you look upon each of us in your mercy today? And would you allow us to see you in your mercy and to be transformed by grace, not guilt? And as we seek you, Lord, we know that we can find you. You say, draw near, and you'll draw near to us. And so, God, that's our prayer in this season, that you would grow our hunger for you as we seek you, as we draw near to you, as we lean in to prayer and to worship. Give us penitent hearts for the season of repentance. For your glory and kingdom, we pray. Amen.